Thank you very much. We do appreciate all the people that helped to make this service happen. It's awesome. Thank you, musicians. Love those. Love those song choices. And for those watching online, we are so glad that you're joining us. And we pray also that God will speak to your hearts. I'm allowed to have a little plug because everything else has been plugged today. Next Steps is on today, and if you haven't had enough of me by the end of this sermon, you're welcome to join us in Next Steps in that room over there after the service, and that would be really awesome. It's about learning about what DLC is all about, its values, and finding your purpose in, the, in amongst it. So plug over. Ready for the word? Yes. yes. Okay, so the title of today's message is Jesus, the Man in Question. We, are being, we have been uh, participating in a series most of the year, Jesus More Than You Know, and we've been looking at the Gospels. And we're up to Luke, and we're up to week two of Luke. And, um, yeah, so my title, Jesus, The Man in Question. But the, the book of Luke, I believe, is we know it's written by um, the man, a, a physician, but his writing is like an optical prescription and because he helps to make it all so clear exactly what has happened when the fulfilment of the scriptures has happened. So there's two books, Luke and Acts, that, um, that Luke wrote. Acts is the sequel to Luke and if you understand Luke, then you will be able to see more clearly what is happening in the book of Acts. So the first book, which is what we're um, looking at today, about the good news, connecting the dots between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's a message of salvation for all people, a fulfilment of Israel's promises. But the whole of the activity of Luke is directed and delivered, the message is delivered by the power of the Holy Spirit. But there's one more theme that is going through Luke, and it is the theme of Jubilee. And let me just explain Jubilee. It comes from Leviticus, and it was written in law that every 50 years, and this is an amazing thing, and something that is the nation of Israel had pretty much long forgotten by, the, by Jesus' time, it was related to the Sabbath concept, the Sabbath principle of rest and restoration. And it was releasing people from debt, freeing of slaves and returning property to the original family owners. So that happened every 50 years. And the message behind that from God's perspective is everything belongs to me anyway. So he's just levelling it all out every 50 years, levelling everything out, putting things back in place, setting people free. And that is the message that continues through the book of Luke. The second book that Luke wrote we know is the book of Acts and it's just an extension of everything that happens in this book where people continue to spread the good news but now from Jerusalem and to all the way to Rome and <clears throat> this included the Gentiles. So we're going to have a look at why this book was written for Theophilus. It could be so that he could be sure of the person and teaching he'd been given, so that Theophilus could be assured of the man in question, Jesus. 
And as I said, it's a bit like an optical prescription. When your optometrist gives you those new glasses that you've thought you were seeing quite well, but there's been, you know, a few years, and then, well, for those of us who've had this experience, they give you the new glasses and suddenly you realise that you weren't seeing as clearly as you thought you were, and now it's way more clear. But before we launch into this, uh, um, the word this morning, we're going to watch a video. And I have to tell you, this is my all-time favourite Christmas video. And according to the response of everybody between the last between the services, it's now everybody else's favourite video. So we're just going to watch that before we launch into the word. Have you ever wondered what we might see if we could pull back the curtain of time to that very first Christmas? If we could, I imagine the story began in heaven, something like this. God was looking over heaven's balcony one day, shaking his head at all the wrong things people were doing down on earth. Oh man, this isn't quite what I had in mind when I created Earth. I feel so far away from my kids down there. Why? It's just hard to be friends with people when you don't like what they're doing. I think it's time. Time for what, Lord? Time for us to step in. Shall we ready the army, Lord? Catch them listen? No, I don't think we should send an army. Maybe just one person. One person? Brilliant! They won't be expecting that! Lord, if we're sending just one person, we'll have to be someone very powerful and very strong. Because there's tons of people down there. No, they don't have to be strong. They'll be going as a newborn baby. A newborn baby? baby? Brilliant! They won't be expecting that! Lord, this plan is rather risky. A newborn human baby is small and weak. This baby must be born to people who will protect him. Maybe a great ruler or mighty king? Actually, I was thinking I could send him to a young peasant girl whose heart is beautiful and full of courage. A peasant girl? Brilliant! <laughs> they won't be expecting that! My Lord, I see you're planning to take Earth by surprise. No one will be expecting a newborn baby born to a humble villager. But what good can a baby do? This will not just be any baby. I'm sending in the Prince of Heaven in disguise. The Prince of Heaven? Our Prince? Your son? Lord, this is too risky. Sending the prince in disguise as a tiny baby, born not to kings, but to humble villagers. Surely our prince cannot be born in a cottage. He must be born in a palace. You're right. He shouldn't be born in a cottage. Phew. He'll be born in a stable. A stable surrounded by animals filled with hay, filled with poo. Brilliant. They won't be expecting that. Lord, how will all the people know he's there? What if they don't notice? Those who are looking will find him, and his mission will bring all people closer to me, even if they do something really wrong. When the prince is done, nothing will get between them and my love. Can we leave some clues for the people looking? Like in the stars? Clues in the stars? Sure, why not? We can make one huge one that points to him. Can we sing for him? Yes, can we sing? 
God looked at their hopeful faces, and his heart was touched by their love for the Finns. Alright, you can sing. But not in front of the whole world. That would just be weird. And no kings or rulers. How about we sing for some shepherds? That's a lonely job. Those blokes could do with some cheering up. Brilliant. They won't be expecting that. Awesome. Isn't that just the best? And in the Dales household, if anyone says the word expecting, we have to say it in a Kiwi accent. Because <laughs> we all love that video. So, what's that got to do with Luke? Well, it's a little bit obvious. Because we're going to ask some questions today. And the first question is, who were they looking for? Who were the people at this time looking for when Jesus came? It had been 400 years since the last time that was recorded that God had spoken in the book of Malachi. And at the time, people were dominated and treated really cruelly by their Roman oppressors. They were definitely ready for liberation. They were definitely ready for freedom. But who were they looking for? They were looking for the Messiah. They were looking for Israel's prophesied crown prince, the son of David, Daniel 9.25 had recorded the prophecy that they all were longing for. It says, Know and understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. But the bit that they love the most and they're hanging out for is until the anointed one, the ruler, comes. But you see, longing for the Messiah meant different things to different people. And some people were getting a little impatient. And so those that were looking for a liberator, some of them had become joined the zealot group and they were actually trying for insurrection against their oppressors themselves. They're taking it into their own hands. Others were looking for a ruler, like a king, to sit on David's throne as promised in 2 Samuel 7. And others were looking for a political leader to install God's promised kingdom on the earth, restore Israel to its rightful place on the planet. But all we're calling this, we are looking for the Messiah. And the Messiah is announced really clearly in the first two chapters of Luke. Although, as per the video, in unexpected ways. Unexpected ways. Not very good at it. Angelic visitations came to unexpected people in unexpected places. Common and ordinary places. Zachariah, just a run-of-your-mill priest, his turn to be in the temple by lottery and he had been longing for a long time to have a baby, a long time, and he and his wife were way past the age for childbearing, given up for a child, hope for a child. And there's a link here which is obvious to Abraham and Sarah, Abram and Sarah, longing for something for so long People do lose hope. When things take a long time, how about you? Do you lose hope? But my message this morning is that God in his time is always faithful 
Even when we are unfaithful, he is always faithful, always faithful. I've experienced this myself in many areas of my life where I have not even been brave enough to hope anymore for some things and then God turns up and you think, oh, I'd forgotten or not much forgotten. I had sat on that. I had left that behind. And, you know, when we lose hope, God is faithful. And to Zechariah was the promise of a child who was John the Baptist and at the same time he was declaring that his new baby son was going to be the messenger, the forerunner before the Messiah comes. It's starting to happen. All the prophecies are coming into line. Then there was Mary and the angels that came to her, a very young unmarried girl from Nazareth. So where's Nazareth anyway? It's the back blocks as far as the Judeans were concerned. So we've got Judea down here. We've got Samaria in the middle. And we've got Galilee up the top. And then there's this town called Nazareth. So the important people and the temple and all of the religious and those in control are down here in Judea. But God chooses Mary up here in Nazareth. It's a place where there was mixed population. In fact, some people despised people from Nazareth in that area from Galilee. Judeans despised them. They were considered lax because they weren't down here where the temple was. By down here, I'm describing, I can picture the, uh, <laughs> the map, okay? It's down here. Um, so, and they were considered to be inferior. And, you know, sometimes places can um, take on this kind of an attitude where one place is more important than another. And some people sometimes look at Alice Springs as if it's down there and not important and a long way away. And we are a long way away, but we're not less important, let me tell you. Because in God's eyes, every place is the same. It's us that sees places as less important or more important. It's us who see people as less important or more important, but not God. So Mary received this news, this exciting news that she was to give birth to this Messiah. And then, so we've got Zechariah and we've got Mary, and then we have angels coming to the shepherds. Now, shepherds, they call them often in the play. You know, we all want our kids to be the shepherds, but in actual fact, shepherds were not actually, you know, these shepherds were not actually, uh, you know, the, they were lowly is a good word to describe <laughs> what the shepherds were like. These were not shepherds who were, you know, big landowners who had lots of herds. These were the shepherds who were moving the sheep towards the towns that they could be used for the sacrifice in the temple. And so they're sitting up on the hill minding their own business and the angels turn up to them. I love their response. It's, let's go. That's it. Like, no questions asked. They just went for it and said, let's go and have a look. They just believed. It's just awesome. So we shouldn't look down on what people call lowly. These shepherds were the ones that the angels visited so people sometimes think these things are unexpected. The way God moves is unexpected and unusual, but it's not God that thinks this way. 
He sees everyone and every place the same. God doesn't see class or status. He doesn't have this one's important and this one is not. He looks at us exactly the same, wherever we are from and wherever we um, go. We all have the opportunity, the same opportunity, to bring the good news and he doesn't think he doesn't think you sharing the good news in your staff room is less important than James sharing the good news in the Delhi hospital. He doesn't think that you sharing the good news at your school is less important than Pastor Ben and Dan sharing the good news in Darwin. It's the same good news and he sees us all the same. It is our view that needs adjusting not his. God in all his holiness desires to be with us in our ordinary lives and he wants to use us through our ordinary lives. He emphasises through this gospel, Luke emphasises the humanity of Jesus, the ordinariness of it all. Good news for all of us is that we are all equal in God's sight. Luke further emphasises Jesus' humanity when He talks about him as a young person and as a 12-year-old. In the other Gospels, there is no mention of what happens in the ordinary life of Jesus. But here we go to Luke 2, verses 48 to 50. And the story is that the family, along with all the other families, had gone, as they do usually once a year, down from up in Galilee, down to Judea, going to the temple in Jerusalem for the Passover and 12-year-old Jesus is found in the temple. And it says when his parents... Oh, they, they lost him. They, they, when the, um, their time there in the temple was over, they'd all gone off as the family. And Jesus had stayed behind. They'd lost him. And he says, it says, When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? And I can hear every parent of a teenager asking that question. Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. You see, their perspective, their optical prescription was still being adjusted. They knew he was the son of God, the Messiah, but still, it's still not making a lot of sense yet. What is going on? So in chapter 3, we get to Jesus' water baptism and Jesus' identity as being both the Son of God but fully man is on display for all to see. Some had even been wondering if John was the one, John the Baptist, whether he was actually the Messiah. Luke 3.15 says, The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John had might possibly be the Messiah. And then Jesus turns up at the river, the man Jesus. And Matthew 3, verses 13 to 14 says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptised by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptised by you, and do you come to me? See, Luke is full of questions like this. You're coming to me? Aren't you the Messiah? Why are you coming to me? But right then, Jesus went through the waters of baptism, fulfilling his humanity. 
God clearly declared, though, when he rose from the water, who Jesus was. You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. How awesome for Jesus to hear this. And Luke goes on further in that chapter, tracing Jesus' genealogy all the way back to Adam, making it really, really clear this is a real man and you can trace him right back to the beginning of humanity. Now, the devil knows exactly who Jesus is, but he, in the wilderness, tries to test Jesus, saying these words, If you are the Son of God, he knows that he is the Son of God. If you are the Son of God, and then offers him every temptation that man all of us also face. And right there we see that the real man, Jesus, though the Son of God, was facing everything that every ordinary human has to face. But for some people, this idea of Son of God, Son of Man, divine and human, is a very difficult truth to accept God made flesh, son of man, fully human, living a perfect human life empowered by the spirit. Is it possible? God was showing that what we would see as impossible was possible. And Jesus' message, when he declared himself as the one, as the Messiah, he says, this is it. This is the mystery that you've all wondered how it will be, what it will look like. This new kingdom you are looking for is now here and it's me. I'm the one. It's time to let you see the Son of Man in action. And he had a few questions of his own. But first of all, in his declaration, Luke chapter 4, verse 18 to 21, reading from the the scroll in the synagogue in Nazareth. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. Sitting down was the posture of someone who's about to teach. He sat down and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Who is this man? Who is he? He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What? Is this not Joseph's son? From 22 to 24 in chapter 4, it says, All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly, I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted 
in his own town. So they are all asking the question, who is he? So we're going to ask another question. From this time on, what did they see? They saw a man called Jesus. They were looking for the Messiah. But what they saw was a man called Jesus. And he walked the dusty streets of Galilee, performing miracles, bringing the kingdom of God by his very presence amongst the common, ordinary people, including every type of outcast, every level of society, every person that would that was in that street. And he did this on the streets for everyone to see. And he takes a bunch of ragtag misfits along for the ride, 12 of them. That's significant when we're joining the dots between the Old Testament and the New, that there were 12 disciples because this is a new nation as similar to the 12 tribes of Israel. These 12 guys included fishermen, tax collectors and zealots. And they were just a strange bunch of men, really, because let me tell you that a tax collector working for the Romans is not on the same team as a zealot. They're just not on the same team. But Jesus just put them on the same team. This is a mismatch between what people would expect someone to do. No um, religious students on his team... He is stepping out into the realm of the unexpected. So let's just have a look at what Jesus did, what, his, what they saw. And we're looking in chapter 7. And I'm just going to briefly explain what they saw. It starts, chapter 7, with a, centuri- with a centurion servant in Capernaum being healed. This was someone that the Jews loved. They, he was a great guy. He helped them, he'd built synagogues, he was really good to the Jews, people liked him. And so they pleaded with Jesus, his son is sick, he deserves to have you heal him because Jesus had been healing everybody, was hearing and seeing this. But you know, Jesus didn't respond to the centurion because of who he was, but he responded to him because of his faith. It was his faith that caused that healing from come to come from Jesus. It is not about who we are, what status we are, or how much we deserve. It is about Jesus responding to the faith of an individual. And it was just awesome and everybody saw it. Then we went to then he goes to the town of Nain, and as he's coming through the gate, there's a widow there who so sad and sorrowful and the crowd walking with her because as a widow, she is relying on her son to be her future. And now in this coffin as they're walking through the gate is her son who has died. So she is a widow with her only hope in this coffin. And I can imagine the wailing and the crying and the heartbreak and the the hopelessness of this situation. And you know what? Jesus does the unthinkable, touches that coffin, and that son is back to life. Jesus responded to her cry. 
He responded to her sorrow and he gave back all and restored. The news spread and there was some who were not particularly happy with the news and the the crowds were gathering and growing and we get further down into uh, Luke 7 and we see that Jesus has been invited to a Pharisee's home. Now this invitation was probably to be a testing time. They weren't really that interested in Jesus but they had him in the home seeing what they could find out about him. But while Jesus was sitting at the table, and in these days the table was low and people sat with their knees forward and their feet behind, and someone came into the house, was recorded as a sinful woman, not invited, comes into the house and stands behind Jesus and she weeps at his feet and her tears fall to his feet. And she wiped them with her hair and kissed them. This was someone whose heart was just full of thankfulness. And Jesus speaks to her and he says to them, Do you see this woman? I'll tell you what I see, but what do you see? He responded to her heart of love. He responded to her desire for forgiveness. It wasn't who she was. It was what she had in her heart. You see, Jesus didn't just teach the kingdom. He was the kingdom. The mystery was being unwrapped before their eyes. Christ is our hope, our light, our life. He is the jubilee. He is the great leveller of all. He is the restorer, the one who sets people free. Jubilee was here. But Jesus saw each person exactly as they were. He walked with compassion and mercy and power and authority amongst the streets. He heard the cries when there's a crowd around him. He'd hear the cry of a blind man calling out over here. He responded to faith and brought healing. He restored life to the broken and to the sorrowful. He gave hope to the lost. He blessed the poor. And by poor, not we're not just talking about riches. We're talking about people who were outcast, people that were being pushed aside and ignored by the rest of society. He strengthened the weak. He delivered the oppressed. He brought near the outsiders. outsiders. He lifted up those that were considered unworthy. He fed the hungry. He touched the untouchable. He wiped the tears and forgave the sinner. And he gave life to the dead. Jubilee was here. He didn't come to deliver a nation but to save the world but he was doing it one individual at a time. And that is still the way that Jesus works today. He's come to save the world. He came to save the world. But he does that one individual at a time. He brings jubilee to you as an individual if you will accept him. Do you know even John the Baptist struggled when he was imprisoned And it was really 
sad and unfortunate situation that he was in. He was about to lose his life. And his John the Baptist's followers, who had been continuing to be disillusioned and hadn't been following Jesus, but were aware of what he was doing, but they were the ones that visited John the Baptist in prison and, and they told him what was going on, secondhand information. But in their hearts, they're thinking, but if he's the Jubilee, how come you're still in prison? And even John sent a message to say, are you the one? Are you really the one? Be careful of second-hand experience of Jesus. We need to have an experience for ourselves. John the Baptist didn't have the opportunity to see Jesus and the heart and the lives. He would have understood, been more clear. At the same time as they saw him as he truly was, he showed men who they truly were. Some were attracted to the light and some were repelled by the light. Jesus in the spirit knew exactly what people were thinking. It clearly says this in the book of Luke. And it wasn't just who he was that angered people that were being repelled by this light. It was what he did and the way he did it. He was bucking all the religious traditions and norms of the day. These religious traditions were burdensome to the people and as far as Jesus was concerned, they needed to be bucked. He ate grain in the grain fields. Now that's just shocking because he did it on a Sabbath. How shocking. He healed on the Sabbath, equally shocking. He forgave sins, but doesn't God, isn't God the only one that can forgive sins? He ate in the tax collector's house. He even invited them to follow him. He spoke to women and allowed them to touch him. When Jesus' light shines on some people, or actually when it shines on all of us, sometimes it shows things that are in our heart. It shows us, if we're offended or we want to complain about and it shouldn't happen that way why did God do that it shouldn't it shouldn't happen like that what it's doing is actually exposing what's in our heart but Jesus didn't come to condemn the world he came to bring salvation and while he was sharing his light and for some there was an offense he was inviting everyone equally to acknowledge what was in their heart and to come to him to have that thing removed and changed. He gave everyone the opportunity to open the eyes of their hearts to receive the kingdom. Everyone. Everyone was seeing the same thing, yet responding differently. Luke 2, verse 34 and 35, records Simeon's blessing to Mary. when she came into the temple with Jesus. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword 
will pierce your own soul too. Everyone is seeing the same thing when Jesus walked the streets. But that's actually not about physical eyes. It's about spiritual eyes. It's about our hearts. Some began to fall and others began to rise. Jesus polarised the crowd, turned everything upside down. What was causing this spiritual blindness for some, this stumbling at who was this man Jesus? For some it was pride. For some it was because they were hungry for power and they wanted to hold on to it and they could see the crowd were going this way with Jesus. For some it was because they loved those man-made rules and wanted to hold on to them like idols. For some, people are rich in their own self-sufficiency. Some were puffed up with knowledge and some self-righteous. They couldn't handle the light in their eyes, so they sought to get rid of him. But Jesus wept for the nation of Israel that missed seeing who he was. He wept. Jesus, the man in question, he's got one more important question for his disciples and it's a question for us. And in chapter 9, he says, But what about you? Who do you say that I am? Jesus challenges everyone to decide who he is. And the scene is set by Luke, the master storyteller, because Jesus asks this question and then he continues to go towards Jerusalem, knowing what's ahead, knowing that he's going to die for them, knowing that he's jubilee had a price jesus came to seek and to save the lost if we refuse to acknowledge we are lost we can't find him jesus shines his lights light into our eyes like the optician and finds hidden things jesus doesn't offer us a new prescription however he offers us salvation making us a new creation with new sight. He gives us his righteousness in exchange for our sins. It's an exchange, old for new. He gives us his spirit to make us a new creation. He gives us grace instead of condemnation, grace that saves and heals us. It could be that while I'm talking that Jesus' light is shining into your heart and exposing hidden issues. He's not doing that because he's condemning you. He's doing that because he knows those things are harmful for you and he wants to set you free from them. He knows it's harmful and today he's offering you liberty and new life. Those that keep their pride, their busyness and self-righteousness miss him. But those that come empty-handed, that come hungry, that come in humility and come as they are, can receive all of him and he will come to them and he will give you great revelation and give you new light. Luke 8, 16 to 18 says this, No one lights a lamp and hides it in a clay jar or puts it under a bed. Instead, they put it on a stand so that those who come in can see the light. For there is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed and nothing concealed 
that will not be known or brought out into the open. Therefore, consider carefully how you listen. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have even what they think they have will be taken from them. I find these scriptures in Luke a little bit challenging. I don't know about you. So the first question, who are you looking for? Some people say, I'm trying to find myself. But Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And do you know that if you answer that correctly and say, Jesus, my Saviour, my Deliverer, then He will reveal more of Himself to you and you will discover that you find yourself. You will discover who you were created to be. Luke 9, 23 to 24 says this, and this is the challenge. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. The more we try to hold on to our plans and desires, the more we will lose ourselves. The second challenge from the book of Luke is for us to walk the street the way that Jesus walked the street. He walked that street empowered by the Holy Spirit, proclaiming a good news, the good news, freedom, life. And he did that with the eyes of his spirit. He saw everyone as individuals. He saw everyone equally. He didn't think, I won't tell them because they're not interested, they won't be interested. He he, he didn't say, oh, this one's too, too sinful. This one is too powerful. He gave everyone the opportunity. Let's walk the streets as Jesus did, with the Holy Spirit, with eyes and heart that see people and see that they can receive Jesus the same as anyone else. Let's not be the ones that pick and choose who we think is going to receive the message of life and light. So we're going to pray right now and then we're going to worship. We're going to sing through for a few times some songs that will challenge us. But while we're singing, I'm going to ask you to consider what it is that God's telling you today from this book of Luke. Do we need an adjustment in our prescription to see Him clearly? Is His light in our hearts causing us to be repel, repelling God or is it drawing us towards Him? Are we ready to let Him take those things and set us free, letting us accept this jubilee? Let's just pray before we sing and let's consider these words today. Father, I just pray for everyone who is here today listening. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for your light. Thank you for coming and giving us jubilee, for giving us freedom, 
for giving us grace, for giving us salvation. You're so good, Jesus. Thank you for coming and showing us how to live on this earth of ours. We love you, Jesus. Amen.